So having felt the direct weight of, of the Assyrian yoke since the time of Ahaz and bearing the scars from Assyria's uh, trail of destruction through Judah, the spiritual reform and territorial growth under, uh, under the reign of Josiah provide some reason for hope. And it was during that time that God provided a vision confirming Judah's sense of hope while also issuing a promise of justice. God had not forgotten his people, nor has he forgotten his enemies. And through Nahum, both, uh, both will receive the same words, though the message will be very different. And so the book of Nahum begin, begins this way. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. So he, 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 uh, we are introduced to an oracle or a pronouncement concerning or regarding Nineveh. Uh, this declaration, it's, it's the declaration that this is an, 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 an oracle, uh, is a typical description or descriptor for a prophetic message. Um, the Hebrew word ma uh, massa can also mean burden, or more commonly, uh, but or more commonly, it is used uh, to refer to an oracle or an utterance, as in to lift up one's voice. And some will argue for a kind of a blended meaning, and certainly Nahum's writings would fit into the category of a weighted message, or a weighty message. And this message is primarily about Nineveh. It's not unusual for God's prophets to include passages of judgments against foreign nations, uh, such as we saw at the beginning of the chapter, in the opening chapters of Amos, where uh, seven other, or six other foreign nations are listed off there. These are, are typical, uh, typical features of many of the, the prophets. And as has been said before, it is unique, however, for entire prophetic book to be uh, solely about a nation outside of Israel. Only Obadiah's prophecy about Edom uh, stands as the only other example, though of course uh, a case could be made that Jonah would also fit into this category uh, as his message was meant for a foreign nation. In fact, the same nation that now Nahum is addressing over a century later. Nahum's writing, Nahum, Nahum is writing about Nineveh. This is the capital uh, city of, of the nation of Assyria, and so it, it stands as a representative of that entire nation. So it would be incorrect to think, uh, to imagine Nineveh as, as, say, a hive of scum and villainy, to coin a phrase. Um, as much as we, as much as we uh, have not, uh, as much as we have uh, focused on the brutality of Assyria, it is, it was also the capital, uh, its capital was also the intellectual and cultural center of its time. Sennacherib, who moved the capital there during his reign, Esher Hayden and Ashurbanibal II, all proved to be capable builders. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world is, is the uh, Hanging Gardens of Babylon. And as archaeologists continue to uh, dig through the ru ancient ruins of Mesopotamia, opinion and evidence is shifting to, to believe that the Gardens of Babylon were in fact the 80-room palace of Sennacherib in, in Nineveh. Uh, at the time, it was described as the palace without rival. And then further, Ashurbanibal put together the world's foremost library of the time, assembling over 30,000 clay tablets from all over the region. He combined this with double ramparts uh, protecting over 100,000 residents, and Nineveh was the academic, cultural, and military capital of the world. 
So Nahum's prophecy of doom is not against some sort of dust-filled town in the middle of the desert. It was, in fact, against the capital of world power. Now, Nahum states that his message uh, that he has received came in the form of some sort of vision. And so this vision uh, would uh, perhaps include some sort of visual or auditory uh, elements. Isaiah and Obadiah both use the same term uh, in, uh, in, in the title of their works. And so it indicates that some sort of, uh, it indicates that the source of me message is divinely given revelation. It's not based upon uh, Nahum or the prophet. And is this, vi is this vision that makes up the content of this book or scroll of Nahum? Uh, as Nahum identifies, he is explicitly mentioned as a book. Um, and such a, uh, such a description suggests that this is intentionally captured in written form as opposed to uh, a collected uh, collection of preached sermons as we have found with other prophets. Now that said, um, even though this seems to be intentional, uh, intentional writing or, or, or writing of this vision, there is no clear or agreed upon outline for the book. And finally, the author is identified as Nahum the Elkishite, and that is really all we know about him. Uh, his name means comforted, and it may be a shortened form of Nahum El, which means God has comforted, or Nehemiah, uh, the, God, or the Lord has comforted. His name points to the purpose of his writing. Even though it is a prophecy against judgment, it is indeed a message of comfort and assurance to God's people that he has not abandoned them nor forgotten their suffering. Uh, unlike Amos from Tekoa and Micah from Moresheth, Nahum's hometown of Elkosh is unknown. Now it's possible to outline the book uh, into three sections. Uh, the first section being the zeal and power of the Lord. The second one, basically chapter 2, is a, a description of the siege or destruction of Nineveh. And then finally, last, ver or last chapter uh, presents the cause and certainty of Nineveh's downfall. Now, within, these, uh, within this first chapter, uh, Hosea's, or Nahum is going to open up with a hymn of him describing God's power and justice. And so he begins, he begins uh, his oracle this way. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and, and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the, Lord, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. So Nahum doesn't waste any words. He gets right down to the point. And as harsh as this language is, this is not a new revelation from God. It's not a new perspective on God. But rather, it is a summary of God's own self-description. And in a connection that his, immediate, or that his original audience uh, would have immediately grasped, one, one can't read these opening lines of Nahum without recognizing that he's drawing our attention to Exodus 34. In Exodus 34, 6 and 7 and 14 it reads, And he, the Lord, passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord the, uh, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the, the children and their, and their children for the sins of their parents to the third and fourth generation. And then down in 14 it says, Do not worship any other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. 
So the God of Nahum is the God of Moses, is the God, uh, the God who drove out the wicked nations uh, of the promised land, is the same God who will, dry, who will bring an end to the wickedness of the Assyrians. The fact that God is described as a jealous God um, has been a source of difficulty for many Christians uh, and certainly a point of criticism uh, or attack by atheists and skeptics. For a jealous God is thought to be a petty or an immoral God, more akin to the temperamental pagan deities of Israel's Near East neighbors than that of a supreme and omnipotent being. So fundamental to the nature of jealousy is a desire for something. And from this, two observations can be made. First, jealousy implies value. The fact that something is desired implies it has value. The thing desired has worth or value to the person who, in fact, desires it. No one is jealous of something they do not care for. And then second, there is, an always, there is always an, an object of one's jealousy. It is directed toward or about something. Additionally, this object of jealousy is often possessed or threatened by another person. One may be jealous of their neighbor's new car, for example, or a co-worker's job title. Now, in assessing the morality, uh, or the, in, in morally assessing one's jealousy, it's critical to assess the legitimacy of one's claim to the thing that is desired. Does one have a right to the object of one's jealousy? If one does not, this form of jealousy becomes known as envy or coveting. If one is entitled to the object in question, jealousy is morally justified. In, in fact, one is morally permissible to defend what is one entitled to possess. You are not morally justified in being jealous about your neighbor's new car, as you do not have the right to possess it. But you, have, you, may be je you may jealously defend your own car should that neighbor try to take it. When scripture says that God is jealous, it must be asked, jealous of what? What is the object of God's jealousy? What does he value or desire to have? And in the Old Testament, there are two very similar Hebrew adjectives that are translated jealous, and they are used eight times and only in the context of God. And two of which we have already read in Nahum and Exodus 34. The first time it's used is actually in the middle of the third commandment, uh, beginning in Exodus, 20, uh, in Exodus 20, verse 4. It says, Do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above, or on the earth below, or in the waters under the earth. Do not bow and, and worship to them. Do not serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations for those who love me and keep my commands. So here, as in, other in uh, every other case, it is the faithfulness of his people that is the object of God's jealousy. And so like a husband or wife who is jealous for his or her spouse's fidelity, God desires to have all the affection of his people. The legitimacy of God's claim is at least twofold. At the uh, first, uh, as the preamble to the Ten Commandments states, He is the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land or out of the place of slavery. So He's Israel's redeemer, and, and worthy of their affection. 
Second, Israel has pledged herself to God. Israel is, a, is God's covenant people and have, performed, and have promised their fidelity to him. So God's jealousy um, is, is legitimate. It has a legitimate claim on his people. And so far as our study of the minor prophets has gone, uh, we have seen God bring multiple charges and lawsuits against his own people for their infidelity and spiritual prostitution, as Hosea clearly displayed. What we find in Nahum is a different side of God's jealousy. Recall that jealousy implies that one values, or one may say, loves that which is desired. And indeed, God desires and loves the faithfulness of his bride. God has a legitimate claim to Israel's fidelity. And in Nahum, we find uh, God willing to defend his bride from those who would wish to harm her or lead her astray. So God's defense of his people then leads naturally into the vengeance of God. This is not some emo emotional outburst, but an expression of God's justice. It arises from and reflects the seriousness by which God treats those who seek to oppress or to impair God's uh, people in their faithful devotion to him. One recalls Jesus' words in Matthew 18.6, If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that, they, that caused people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. Far from being petty and vindictive, God's jealousy and vengeance are in fact expressions of his deep love for his people and his justice in dealing with those who would seek to corrupt or destroy that relationship. Whether through their paganism, um, recall what happened with Manasseh and the many gods he worshipped, or by their, destruction, their destructive attacks against uh, Judah, Israel has impaired the relationship between God and his bride, and he will no longer stand by. Nahum then parallels uh, God's vengeance with his wrath, uh, with the two, two terms being nearly synonymous. Vengeance perhaps reflecting uh, God's response to, an, to a personal affront, uh, while wrath emphasizes his intensity. Neither exists merely in some sort of abstracted form or internalized within God. His vengeance and wrath are in fact manifested and worked out in world history. They are brought to bear on actual people and nations, those who would stand in opposition to God and his people. Even as he is an avenging God, Nahum also recognizes that God does not uh, react spontaneously. He doesn't lash out in anger like some sort of petulant pagan deity. Uh, instead, Nahum describes God uh, as a master of, a master of wrath, uh, which kind of indicates his control or intentionality. Further, it says he keeps wrath for his enemies. And this reveals that God is, is aware of all the sins of his enemies and uh, pours out his wrath in his time. He, there's this uh, sense of reserving or storing up God's wrath. And so as Nahum, Nahum is based there, we, we've seen this uh, in the past with God giving people time uh, to, to uh, repent, for, uh, repent and come back to him. Uh, first Peter makes, or second Peter makes this clear later on, uh, but you can also see that remnants in, in Joel as well, where God is, is uh, waiting for people to perhaps turn back to him. But in, in no sense is, is, the, is wrath or anger 
uh, what's driving this. God is, God is in control of his wrath, and when he will pour that out is uh, up to him. And so as Nahum basically is quoting from Exodus here, God is slow to anger. Even in anger, God is patient toward, uh, toward those deserving of immediate judgment. So in, in the familiar Exodus passage, uh, God, or describing God as slow to anger is immediately followed up with an abounding in love and faithfulness. That's, that's how the Exodus passage reads that, Micah, or that, Jonah, that Nahum is, is uh, appealing to. But note that here in Nahum, uh, he concludes his couplet, um, slow to anger, with the phrase, and great in power. There's a, there's a striking change here. In fact, it's so striking, some commentators over the years have wished to, to amend this text to match Exodus because it seems so out of place. Though neither uh, the text itself nor its transmission history would require such a change. So Nahum is, is not emphasizing uh, God's love and faithfulness for his people, um, though that certainly is in the background here. Remember, though, and, and certainly even Jonah or even uh, Assyria and Nineveh have experienced God's love and, and, and in fact, mercy uh, through Jonah uh, some hundred years prior. But now, however, it is about God's vengeance and wrath on Assyria. And so just as Sennacherib was mistaken about the God of Jerusalem, Assyria should not be uh, mistaken that the patience, or should not mistaken the patience of God for impotence. God is indeed great in power and will exact his vengeance on the guilty. And Assyria's strength is no hedge of protection. And so Nahum will go on to describe uh, that divine power as it's demonstrated by God's control over uh, creation, which we'll look at next week. But this week I found it important to address uh, Nahum's opening as it can be both difficult to handle and yet grounds the rest of the book. God's wrath against Assyria is not merely because of their, if, if you will, normal wickedness or everyday wickedness. Um, in this regard, Assyria is not unique uh, is not a unique evildoer, especially uh, uh, compared to their historical and cultural neighbors. Furthermore, the fact that, God's ju God, that God judges those in rebellion against him, uh, even pagan people and nations, um, is not a new revelation to, uh, to uh, Nahum or his writings. What we find in Nahum is a God jealously standing up in defense of his people, in defense of his bride. He's confronting and meeting out vengeance on those who would threaten his bride. And it reveals the depths of God's love and the extent by which he will go to confront the evil and wickedness that comes against his people.